pain has reached epidemic proportions in America. I'm Dr. Paul Christo. This is Aches and Gains. Dr. Paul Christo is one of America's leading experts on relieving pain. He's board-certified, Harvard-trained, and a pain medicine specialist at Johns Hopkins. U.S. News & World Report ranks him as a top doctor and among the top 1% in the nation for pain management. Becker's Review selected him as one of the 70 best pain management physicians in America. He's listed as a super doctor for the Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Northern Virginia area. Aches and Gains is a weekly talk show covering all aspects of pain and pain relief. The human impact is real. Older adults, children, and even infants struggle to cope with pain. But there's hope, and there are treatments that can ease pain and suffering. The show offers compelling stories about people who've found relief. We share cutting-edge treatments from contributing experts, and we offer ways to help people cope with their pain. Welcome to the show. Many of us have heard that people say that passing a kidney stone is the most painful experience ever. Imagine feeling that deep, twisting, cramping pain for two days, the time it could take the stone to pass. Women will say that it's worse than labor pain. On the spectrum of pain intensity, labor pain is about the highest, along with cluster headaches. Naturally, nobody would want to have to feel this type of pain, but what if it happens to us, and how can we prevent it from happening? Our guests today will help us answer those questions. Ty Ford, audio engineer and co-producer of Aches and Gains, will revisit his experience with passing a kidney stone and share just how he got through the worst pain of his life. Then Dr. Brian Matlaga, director of stone disease for the Brady Urological Institute at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, joins us. He'll give us cutting-edge information on risks, prevention, and most of all, treatments for kidney stones. Aches and Gains is supported by Medtronic, Purdue Pharma, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Millennium Laboratories, My Life Patient Program, and DC2 Healthcare, and The Pain Community. For live online listening to Aches and Gains, please go to paulchristomd.com. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. Ty Ford is an experienced audio engineer, former radio show host, and current practitioner of both chakra balancing and qigong. He's the co-producer and editor of Aches and Gains. Let's have him walk us through his experience with passing a kidney stone. Ty, welcome to Aches and Gains. Great to be here with you, Paul. I know you're a chakra balancer and recently trained in Qigong healing. Tell us about this form of healing. Qigong is an ancient Chinese modality that uh, deals with the concept that there are lines, uh, meridian lines through the body that carry energy called qi and that blockages can occur during just about any aspect of life. And when they do, uh, this lowers the qi or life force of the individual. And uh, through qigong practicing, we can remove these blockages and make people feel better. Oh, it sounds great. Listen, now take us through at least one of your experiences with passing a kidney stone. I think the first time I passed one was probably about 20 years ago. I only thought about it in retrospect. I was um, in the bathroom Mm -hmm. with a bowel movement. And there was an excruciating pain in the lower right quadrant and so strong that I began to pass out. And as I fell sideways, I hit my head on the wall and the pain from that uh, brought me back into consciousness. Mm. And it was just one quick acute pain. And I thought, well, I don't know what that was, but let's, 
uh, hope that never happens again. Absolutely. I've had patients say, and even my own wife, say that the pain is like a thunderbolt and then becomes even more intense. What was your experience? Mine came on gradually. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a a period, which I got to know, unfortunately, all too well, (laughs) of a certain kind of pain in the lower right quadrant of the body. And the reason for that is that my particular stone problem was in the right ureter. Okay. And the ureter, by the way, is a muscular tube that uh, carries urine from the kidneys down to the bladder. And the pain often comes in waves as the stone travels from the kidney down the ureter into the uh, urinary bladder. And these waves of contraction and the buildup of urine in the ureter is what we think causes the extreme severe crampy pain. Many patients feel that the pain starts in the low back and moves to the groin, or in Ty's case, can sometimes refer to the lower abdomen, and surprisingly even as low as the thigh, or the scrotum, or the labia. Now, in your case, the stone didn't pass in a day or two. So how frequently did you feel the kidney stone pain? In increasing frequency, I would get them mm, at first uh, six months, eight months apart. Then I'd, then I'd have a, a day of uh, four or five hours of really intense pain, mm-hmm. and then they would go away. Then it went from eight months, seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months. And finally, um, the urologist said, <laughs> basically, okay, you big sissy, we don't usually do CT scans or MRIs just for fun, but in your case, uh, and first let me ask you, are you making this up? Is this in your head? I said, you know, I would like it to be in your head. It hurts this bad. <laughs> right. Thank you very much, wise guy. Well, you know, Ty, what your statement highlights what I hear from a lot of my patients, which is that they're not believed that the pain just exists in their head and is not real. Let's go back to the point where you were in the bathroom on the toilet. Did the pain start gradually and then intensify very quickly? Yeah, yeah. I thought, you know, uh, you know maybe it was something I ate, you know, and uh, I thought it was a, a function of the bowel movement. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I can't be 100% certain, but I've never had a bowel movement that painful afterwards. And uh, in looking back after having experienced the kidney stone pain, I'm like, yeah, you know what? That might have been the first one. And I didn't know what it felt like until I had that first one. Exactly. But you had others, didn't you? I kept my life going. And sometime after that, I had a real attack. Mm -hmm. For me, it will probably be different for everyone. But for me, um, it was not unusual for me to wake up in the morning with it. This little pain down in the lower right quadrant. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, here it is. (laughs) But it didn't always have to be that way. It could be during the day. And you know, along with the pain, there was also uh, this maddening sensation to want to urinate, yet you could not. Mm-hmm. And the medical term for that is urinary urgency, and it can be maddening. Sometimes, if I could urinate, the urine was the color of uh, iced tea, mm-hmm. blood in the urine. Right. And uh, that's a sure enough sign that you've got a kidney stone. Exactly. And certainly, as the kidney stone passes through the ureter, it can scrape the inner lining of the ureter and cause blood, which is what you're describing. And, you know, Ty, I'm curious, were you scared? Because this condition can mimic other conditions, like uh, an appendicitis, for example, or hernia problems. The second time, yes. The first time uh, when I was on the toilet, I didn't know what it was. I thought it might have been a bowel situation. Mm -hmm. So this next time, it was full-blown. And um, my girlfriend at the time uh, was driving me in the car up to the hospital. And I I thought maybe if I could scratch the windshield out, it might distract (laughs) me from the severity of the pain I was experiencing. Right. I mean, but in all seriousness, this is exactly why patients will say, it was the worst pain of my life. 
And did you consider that something else was going on? Again, something like uh, an appendix problem or a hernia or, or something else in your body other than a kidney stone? Sure. Uh, I hadn't done anything that would precipitate a hernia and I haven't had appendicitis, mm-hmm. but you know, you're in the throes of this extraordinary pain. First of all, not even get me to the hospital. The first thought is get me out of the pain. Absolutely. Now, Ty, what would you have done if that intense pain hadn't gone away? Take that level down now, several notches, and have that pain continue day after day. That is what having chronic pain is like. Now, at this point, you've had intermittent renal colic, which is the term used for the passing of the stone through the kidney uh, for about five years. And the presence of that stone was later confirmed by a urologist. Did you experience traveling pain throughout that period of time, like from your low back to the groin, or did it stay in one place? After several years, and we were now down to an event of pain about every maybe month and a half, two months, I would get a, a warning, mm-hmm. and there there was a small spot about three inches to the right of my navel, and the pain was always on the right side. Mm-hmm. And that spot on the right side of my navel would begin to show sensation like the beginning of uh, shingles. Oh. Very highly sensitive, not painful, but just the, the early stages of it where I'm like, uh-oh, I know where this is going. And I was told early on, you know, once you uh, have kidney uh, stones, they'll stay on the same side. You know, if you got them on the right, they'll stay on the right. And that held true for a specific reason in my case. But later on, I think the last kidney stone I passed actually was on the left side, Mm -hmm. and that caused me to go through a whole different Mm. scenario with the the people at the hospital. And I've had enough inspections to know that I have some cupping in the intestines. So I said, it could be diverticulitis or it could be kidney stone pain. I don't know. And they said, can you pee? And I said, I cannot right now. And they said, well, uh, here's a bed. Um, we'll wait till you pee. I did. And, you know, iced tea colored urine. They went, oh, okay. We know it's kidney stone. (laughs) Exactly. Let me explain now. Pain sensing nerves travel from the kidney and ureter to the spinal cord. And in Ty's case, he began feeling kidney stone discomfort to the right of the belly button because the nerve fibers from the skin of that part of the abdomen travel to the same place in the spinal cord as the nerves from the kidney and ureter. And that's why we experience pain in areas of the body that aren't related to the origin of the pain, called referred pain. What we're talking about is visceral pain. Visceral pain means organ-related pain. In this case, pain from the stretch of the kidney or the stretch, more specifically, of the ureter when the stone passes through it and the buildup of urine occurs. And by the way, stretch is the main stimulus that's involved in visceral pain. Other things like distension or contraction or traction or compression also triggers visceral pain. And tie along with that, when, when visceral pain is triggered, a lot of patients experience nausea, vomiting, or sweating, which is a result of triggering the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight response. Did you experience that? I didn't have any nausea, but the perspiration. I mean, uh, as soon as the pain started and I was aware that, oh, okay, we're going to be in trouble here in a short period of time. Yeah. Um, I could feel pretty much all my pores open up. And I started to sweat. Mm -hmm. Were you worried that this might lead to another emergency room visit? As long as I got out in front of the pain and got something in me when I very first started to feel the pain before it got uh, too bad, then it would be uncomfortable. 
but usually bearable. Uh, the only other downside thing was the uh, urination urgency, and that was distracting, to say the least. I bet it was. On part two of the show, Ty will describe the details about the uniqueness of his kidney stone, how it was ultimately discovered and then removed. Ty, thanks so much for joining us today on Aches and Gains. Thanks, Paul. When we come back from the break, we'll hear from Dr. Brian Matlaga, Director of Stone Disease at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and this is Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by Medtronic, a global leader in medical technology, alleviating pain, restoring health, and extending life for millions of people around the world. Visit TameThePain.com to learn about treatment options for chronic pain. Teva, a leading global pharmaceutical company committed to increasing access to high-quality health care by developing, producing, and marketing affordable generic medicines, as well as innovative and specialty pharmaceuticals. Millennium Health is a leading health solutions company that delivers accurate, timely, clinical actionable information to inform the right treatment decisions for each patient at the right time. Millennium offers a comprehensive suite of services to better tailor patient care. More information is available at www.millenniumhealth.com. My Life Patient Program and DC2 Healthcare, connecting patients to top physicians in the United States, reaching the highest standard of patient care through research patient programs and gains in overall health. For more information, please visit mylifepatientproject.com and dc2healthcare.com. Welcome back. Dr. Brian Mitlaga is an associate professor of urology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He's a recognized expert in the medical and surgical management of patients with urinary stone disease. He also has an expertise in minimally invasive surgical techniques. Dr. Mutlaga, welcome to Aches and Gains. No, thank you for having me. Let's first talk about the kidney, just, just basic anatomy. The kidneys, they sit um, in your back just below the rib cage. Um, they're about the size of your fist. Mm-hmm. And... So their job is really to uh, filter toxins out of the bloodstream, and then it gets rid of those toxins in the urine. And so there's a a network of uh, teeny tiny tubules in the kidney that are responsible for doing that. And ultimately, the waste product is sent into something called the renal pelvis, which is the area in the central part of the kidney where urine collects. And then it passes almost like uh, out of a funnel down the ureter. And the ureter is a small tube. Uh, that connects the kidney to the bladder. Um, it's about you know twenty centimeters, maybe you know eight ten inches long, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that will uh, get urine down to the bladder and then from the bladder to the outside world. Okay, and Brian. Many might wonder what a kidney stone actually looks like, and you've seen many of them. Some of them look almost like World War II mines, you know, <laughs> with these projections off of them. Uh-huh. Um, you know, very uh, you know sort of angry looking. Others look like a smooth, polished river rock. They typically are brownish, tannish in color. Some of them are really darkly pigmented, almost black. Mm. Others look, you know, like like sparkly gold. Yeah. You can't really crush it between your fingers. You know, they're, they're very, uh, they're not very fragile uh, little things. Great, great description and a lot of variety. Most stones, it seems, are made of, of calcium, but there are others as well, struvite, uh, uric acid, and cysteine, for example. By and large, the vast majority of stones that we see in this country are all calcium-based stones. The common misconception, of course, is that you need to cut calcium out of the diet in order to prevent stones, which mm-hmm. is actually not the case. Some stones are like the struvite stones you mentioned, which 
those form as a consequence of a bacterial infection, that there are certain bacteria that create an environment in the urine that's favorable to formation of that type of stone. Okay. Other stones are composed of uric acid. You know, for example, you may have a patient who has a history of gout who may have too much uric acid uh, in, the, in the bloodstream, and then that spills over into the urine can form a uric acid stone. There's uh, even, you know, rarer subtypes like cysteine, which is a genetic disease um, that, uh, that can promote formation of uh, a stone composed of cysteine, which is an amino acid. And Brian, let's now talk about once the stone forms, when it begins causing pain. At the end of the day, all this is is a plumbing system. So if you have downstream obstruction, you know, then there's usually going to be something backing up upstream. Mm-hmm. And that pressure is what gives you that, the, the pain of a kidney stone. So the smaller stones are more likely to move through the ureter rather than just sit in the kidney. Mm-hmm. And so they're typically the ones that are going to be more likely to cause, you know, the symptoms of pain because they're the ones that are more likely to cause an obstructing problem. Now, on the other hand, it seems like a larger stone would cause more obstruction in the ureter and therefore more pain. The little stone in the ureter could completely plug it. Whereas a big stone, it's too big even to get into the ureter, so it may impair the drainage out of the kidneys somewhat, mm-hmm. but it usually, uh, you know, more often than not, it won't cause a complete obstruction. Um, so, again, you know, when we see patients in the emergency room, you know, that are, you know, have just that classic kidney stone pain, Usually it's from a stone that's in the ureter more commonly than it is from a stone that's in the kidney. It's astonishing, though, to realize that that classic kidney stone pain is from a tiny stone that can cause excruciating, deep, cramping pain that, that we call renal colic. Uh, Dr. Matlaga, how long does it take for a stone to actually form? I mean, three weeks, six months, years? Usually we think that, um, that stones form uh, over a, a long term. When I say most stones, um, we're talking about the calcium stones, the metabolic stones. Right. You know, I'd say over months to years. Okay. Other stones, like the infection-related stones, they may actually form much quicker. Now tell us, what puts us at risk of developing a stone? The stone is a bunch of crystals all stuck together. And so any environment in the urine that's going to increase the chance of those crystals touching one another... Mm-hmm is going to increase the probability of a stone forming. And so you can get an environment such as that either through a very, very low urine volume where the crystals are just really close together because there's not a lot of volume for them to spread out in, Uh or you can get it through uh, just having lots and lots of crystals in the urine. We recommend for stone formers that we want their urine volume to be about two liters per day. Mm -hmm, That's a lot. I mean, that takes about two to three quarts or two to three liters of water intake per day to produce. If you live in a hot, dry climate, are you at risk for forming stones? We'll find out after the break. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and this is Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by The Pain Community, a web-based nonprofit created by people living with pain. Check out paincommunity.org for information, references, advocacy tools, and a premium section to securely interact with other members in forums and chat rooms. Purdue Pharma, making a positive impact on healthcare and on lives. Reminding everyone to safeguard medications in their home. For cutting-edge treatments and resources, follow Dr. Paul Christo on Twitter or like Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo on Facebook. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Brian Matlaga, Associate Professor of Urology and Director of Stone Disease at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Uh, Brian, 
tell us more about what puts us at risk for developing a kidney stone. For something that's been around since antiquity, right, they, they found stones in mummies. Um, we really have uh, a poor understanding of the process by which they form. Mm-hmm. The important thing to keep in mind is that what you drink, what you eat, can affect that risk. Where you live, like you said, the hot, arid climates tend to see more stones than in, you know, uh, cooler climates. Mm-hmm. There's thought to be some seasonal variation that stones present more commonly in summer. And genetics also plays a role, too. But we know that we're seeing an increasing prevalence of stones among the obese, among diabetics. Anytime you're sweating, that that's fluid losses that otherwise would have been contributing to urine volume. Mm-hmm. And so if you are going to you know, do a vigorous workout, you know, really being compulsive with hydration in the process will, you know, kind of be beneficial from preventing stone risk a number of ways. Yeah. You know, you mentioned before that uh, most stones, 70 to 80 percent of uh, stones, are formed from calcium, that is calcium oxalate or calcium phosphate, uh, more specifically. Should we avoid diets that are high in purines, that is meats, or high in oxalate? which is contained in foods like spinach, uh, soy, and peanuts, for example. The other thing that's very important is sodium restriction. Oftentimes, calcium will travel along with it, and so you can wind up with a lot of calcium in your urine if you eat a very salt-rich diet, Mm -hmm. and that calcium in the urine can promote stone formation. It's, you know, kind of everything your, your mother told you growing up. Yes, you should eat animal protein and meat, but, you know, in moderation. So we'd recommend about six to eight ounces of animal protein a day, which is about the size of a deck of cards. How about oxalate? Oxalate is something that's in almost all of the plants that we eat. We don't recommend a strict low oxalate diet to the typical stone former okay. because it's an incredibly difficult diet to follow. You know, it tells you not to eat a lot of things that no one ever eats, like Swiss chard and rhubarb, <laughs> but it also tells you not to eat a lot of things that you're supposed to eat, like leafy green vegetables, broccoli. Certainly, we wouldn't recommend, you know, not eating leafy green vegetables at all. You know, all things in moderation is really what we would counsel. Sure. And then if you are going to have, you know, something that's particularly oxalate-rich, like you're going to have a spinach salad for dinner, or you're going to have a bunch of nuts while you watch the game, then, you know, have an awareness that you're taking in a lot of oxalate, which could increase the risk of stone formation. So then drink an extra, you know, glass of water or two with the uh, with that meal. Mm-hmm, makes sense. Now, Brian, would you recommend these dietary modifications for those who don't produce stones? No, about ten percent of the U.S. population is affected by stones. We, you know, wouldn't counsel all of the patients to follow, you know, very strictly restrictive diets. Uh-huh. Pay attention to the salt. Drink lots of fluids. You know, lots of fruits. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that will be beneficial from a stone risk reduction as well as, you know, reduction of other medical conditions, too. Yeah, good recommendations. Brian, why are men affected three times more than women? In recent years, there's been some research that we're seeing more and more women affected by stones than we have in the past. Oh. Uh, We're also seeing more uh, elderly affected. We're seeing more children affected. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of this is likely due to the, the modern American diet. You know, we tend to consume a diet that's high in processed foods, so it tends to be a sodium-rich diet, yeah. um, tend not to get the exercise like we should, so we're seeing more people affected by obesity, by high blood pressure, mm-hmm. by diabetes. So, and, you know, so all these are contributory, I think. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, Dr. Mutlaga, what happens if the stones just linger in the kidney and never pass through the ureter? The patients that have a non-obstructing stone in the kidney that's causing pain Usually they describe kind of like a chronic, dull achiness, you know, like 
I've always been sore in my back on this on the right side, mm-hmm. and oh, then I just found out I have a stone sitting in that right kidney. Yeah. It's more of that sort of thing. They tend not to be the pain that drives someone to an emergency room. Okay, so their symptoms are a bit different then. Please join us for part two when we find out how long it takes to pass a stone, how to best diagnose it, and what you can do to ease the worst pain of your life. Dr. Butlaga, it was great having you today on Aches and Gains. No, thank you very much for the invitation. It was a lot of fun. The views and opinions expressed in this radio program are solely the views of Dr. Paul Christo and do not necessarily express the views of this radio station and Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, nor an endorsement by any or all of them of any of its content. This show provides medical information, not advice. Please consult your personal physician before engaging in any course of treatment or use of any of the techniques or products discussed on this show. Discussion of particular uses of products on this show have not been approved by any of the manufacturers of such products. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. Aches and Gains is produced by Tom Blair and Ty Ford. Elsa Langford is the technical consultant and engineer. Dr. Paul Christo is the executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo.